Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, the Prime Minister and opposition leaders spar over the outcome of the Trudeau-Biden virtual summit. MPs will debate what was accomplished. As COVID-19 vaccine shipments to Canada ramp up, glitches and confusion seem to mark the initial plans by some provinces to speed up the vaccination process. And the latest cost estimate for Canada's new warships jumps to $77 billion and could go higher. The Parliamentary Budget Officer will be here to explain the numbers. But we'll begin with the political fallout and the follow-up from the Trudeau-Biden virtual summit. The two leaders unveiled what they called a partnership roadmap to cooperate on the pandemic, climate change, economic growth and international alliances. And the president promised to work with Canada for the release from China of the two Michaels, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig. But Canada got no guarantee of an exemption from Biden's Plan by America rules. And the U.S. side did not offer to export U.S.-made vaccines for Canada. And the issue, we're told, wasn't raised at the summit. The opposition today pressed the prime minister about guarantees. On day one, the Biden administration let thousands of Canadian families down with the cancellation of Keystone XL. Yesterday, 30,000 families were expecting the Prime Minister to bring up the situation personally with Line 5 because a decision has to be made in May. Michigan declared an energy emergency and it doesn't seem to be urgent to this Prime Minister despite the fact that workers, families, farms, Communities across Ontario and Quebec are worried about Line 5. The Prime Minister's language was very specific. We raised it. Did the Prime Minister personally raise Line 5 with President Biden? Right Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, yesterday Canada and the United States agreed to an ambitious roadmap uh, partnership. We will work together to beat COVID-19 and ensure everyone everywhere has access to a vaccine. We will also fight climate change and accelerate clean growth. We will create jobs. We will grow the middle class and address systemic racism. We are each other's closest allies and most important trading partners. And yes, we talked about energy security. We talked about cross-border flows. And yes, we raised Line 5. Well, let's drill down now on the Trudeau-Biden virtual summit and what it tells us about the Canada-U.S. relationship and where it might be headed. Rachel Bendayan is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of International Trade. Michael Chong is the Foreign Affairs Critic for the Official Opposition Conservatives. And Jack Harris is the Foreign Affairs Critic for the NDP. Good to see you all. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. Uh, Ms. Bendayan, let me start with you. So there's alignment clearly on climate change and multilateralism and other important issues. But I guess a lot of people are looking at Uh, the virtual uh, bilateral and saying what was missing from the summit closing statements was any forward movement on Buy America or uh, perhaps shipping U.S.-made vaccines to Canada. In fact, the Canadian side uh, didn't even raise those issues, and I guess some people are wondering why not. Well, thanks, Peter. And I would agree with you that a lot of people are talking today about the important reset of this, our most important relationship. President Biden said that Canada is America's uh, closest friend and and most important friend. And and I think you saw that play out uh, in yesterday's lengthy meeting. I I think back to uh, 2016 and the state dinner when uh, President and then Vice President Biden uh, came to Canada. and, And I saw firsthand the synergy between the two leaders. And I think that is going to benefit Canada 
uh, immensely. You know, you mentioned the environment. There is uh, a new a North American alliance in order to tackle climate change. You mentioned the economy. I think that there is certainly no greater um, and, and more important trading partner for Canada. And the same is true for the United States. I mean, Canada sells more, uh, you know, goods uh, to the United States. The United right. States buys more goods from Canada than Japan, China, and the UK combined. So there is. Yeah, I guess what I, I guess what I'm asking is, we didn't hear about Buy American, we didn't hear about vaccines, and, and I'm wondering whether we should have. Uh, why weren't those issues pressed by Canada? They're on the top of Canada's list of things we'd like to see help from the Americans on, but we didn't get that yesterday. Well, Peter, I wasn't in the room, but certainly vaccines was raised. It is our government's obsession. Every single angle and every single partner is uh, is certainly being pressed for vaccines for Canadians. We know that uh, vaccines are what Canadians need right now, and we are certainly working on it. You, you see this week um, the, the most doses of vaccines coming into Canada, and that will continue right. to wrap but, up. But, with, I, mean, uh, I, mean, I mean, it was raised in the, it sounds like it was, March. it was raised in the context of uh, everybody needs to get vaccinated for, to, to make... Uh, to allow trade to continue, to allow the borders to reopen between the two countries. But uh, we're not hearing that Canada made a, a plea for uh, for the president to deliver U.S.-made vaccines to Canada. But let me come back to that. Mr. Chong, uh, so uh, there's clearly immediate movement on the climate change file, something that never happened with the Trump White House. And there's a strong statement from Joe Biden calling for China to release the two Michaels. So what's your assessment of the bilateral? Well, I think it's a good start to relations with a new administration. But at this point, as with many things with this government, it's just a lot of talk and not a lot of action. As you've pointed out, the government failed to secure more vaccines for Canada that are being produced by Pfizer just across the border in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Uh, they also failed to secure an exemption for Buy American policies, particularly important as the North American economy recovers from the economic fallout of this pandemic. But but is While it reasonable to that, is it reasonable to expect the, the is it reasonable to expect the Americans to ship vaccine to Canada before they've vaccinated all of their own people? You know, we've long been close allies, the two closest allies in the world. Uh, for many, many decades. And when 9-11 hit, Canada opened up its borders to American aircraft that were landing in Newfoundland and ensured that those Americans were safe and secure. And so we believe that both Canada and the United States should work closely together on the vaccination, uh, securing the securing of vaccines during this pandemic. And so we're disappointed that Canada was unable to secure the procurement of vaccines that are being produced by Pfizer just across the border in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Okay, Mr. Harris, uh, what's your assessment of, uh, uh, of that first bilateral? Uh, here we are almost 24 hours later. Well, obviously, you know, it's easy to say it's, it feels good when you're not uh, pushing against a brick wall as we had been for the last four or five years. And, you know, I, I, and, I, and it's very reasonable to expect Mr. Biden uh, being... Uh, not being Mr. Trump and being a, a more reasonable person to accept, uh, I guess, some responsibility to take action with respect to the two Michaels, uh, given that the, the, the action was in retaliation for uh, a U.S. request for extradition and the consequence of that. So I, I'm, we're very happy to see that clearly, but it's not, uh, 
uh, you know, as, as has been said, it's an important first step in that we're rebuilding a relationship. Uh, but I don't see anything, any big wins. Uh, it's nice, it's great that we have a, a partner next door who's on the same page with respect to commitments, at least on paper, uh, for uh, the uh, climate change. We want to be working with the Americans uh, on the same uh, direction on that. Uh, it's uh, good to have them do that. But again, we have to look at the results. Uh, what are the results going to be? There was very good feel-good meetings with Mr. Obama at the same time years a few years ago, uh, but we didn't, you know, the, the, the makes a difference if, okay. it, if it makes a difference. And we don't know that yet. Clearly on the, on the climate front, the Americans are going to make a very heavy investment uh, in, in innovation and in uh, infrastructure. Uh, we're not going to necessarily be able to participate in that. We didn't see any real act of, of friendship okay. in the sense of recognizing that Buy America mm -hmm. uh, should be included a North American context. Let me, let me, let me. We didn't get any sense okay. that there's any real change. Rachel Bendine, let me let me. Uh, it occurs to me maybe there's a pivot there. I mean, if if the focus is going to be climate change and greening of economies, uh, does that perhaps present an avenue for Canada on the Buy American file? If you demonstrate to the Americans that you're in lockstep uh, with greening your economy and moving forward on climate change, uh, does, is there a possibility that makes them more open to considering Canada for an exemption on Buy America? Well, I think the possibilities, uh, and we see them already, are are huge. I when I when I read, um, you know, the the readouts, when I look at the notes of, of what President Biden said specifically, he talked about a, a new clean infrastructure plan with Canada. He talked about cross border uh, electricity being transmitted between our two countries. There are enormous economic opportunities that are going to stem from the alignment on environment and and our fight against climate change with the United States. And and to be honest, I. I think that this is uh, extremely heartwarming and extremely important for the Canadian economy. I, I, I can't help, um, you know, with as much respect as I have for uh, my NDP colleague opposite, I can't help but say that it's very hard to take the NDP seriously on the question of yesterday's bilateral when hours before they released on Twitter a fake agenda um, of this meeting between, between the incoming president, the new president of the United States and our prime minister. Is that really the approach the NDP wants to take? Well, then, uh, with yeah. our most important trading partner okay. and ally. I think Mr. Singh jumped in to say that that, that was a mistake, uh, but uh, he, it happened. You're right. So, uh, but let, Mr. Chong, let me have you pick up on that. Uh, are there advantages for Canada if uh, you have these two continental partners moving in lockstep on, on climate change? And what are the advantages and what are the possibilities that might present for Canadian business? Well, there will be no advantages for Canada if we're locked out of this economic recovery. The president has proposed a $1.9 trillion economic recovery plan. A large portion of that is for a green recovery. But that will be of no benefit to Canada if we cannot secure a Buy American exemption. And so we're disappointed that the government of Canada was, that the prime minister was unable to secure it. You know, I might add, uh, Peter, that I'm happy that Mr. the issue of Mr. Kovrig and Mr. Spaver, who have now been held in detention for over two years, was raised. But I'm disappointed that the Prime Minister did not appear to raise the issue of the Uyghur genocide, uh, nor did he appear to raise the issue of Canada joining the quadrilateral security dialogue, which we believe Canada should join. 
which we believe is essential if we are to continue, if we are to start to work with our allies to defend Canada from the threats that China is posing to our citizens, right. our companies, and our values. Mr. Harris, let me finish on you. Uh, we, did, we did get a, uh, a, I think the strongest, certainly the strongest uh, statement we've heard on the two Michaels from a U.S. president in six years. Uh, five plus years, five years. What, um, I, but we didn't hear is how he plans to back that up. He said Canada and the U.S. will work together for the release of the two Michaels. What do you want to hear next? Well, I think I, we want to see, you know, we want to see results, obviously. This is, uh, you know, this has gone on incredibly a terrible and a terrible situation that has, cons has enormous consequences for Canada, as we've seen. Uh, and, uh, you know, America has to do something, whether it does it behind the scenes or whether it does it in public. Uh, is, if it works, it works. I think their action has to be taken and the proof of the pudding is going to be in whether we you're, see you're, you're talking about dro 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 dropping the extradition. Are you... You want them to drop the extradition case against Meng Wanzhou? Well, what what mechanism is, is used or chosen? Uh, I think uh, the Americans uh, can may have a lot of uh, uh, ability that we don't necessarily see and, and know. But uh, dropping the extradition, of course, would be a most direct way. But there was, I think, a clear indication that they don't, uh, uh, they're not expected to do that, or they, they're not intending to right. do that. Uh, lots to watch as the uh, relationship continues to develop uh, with the Biden administration and the Canadian government. Thank you all for your time today. We'll talk again. Canadians eager to learn more about when they will get a COVID-19 vaccine are starting to get answers from the provinces. As federal shipments of vaccine ramp up, the provinces are nailing down their vaccination plans and setting up schedules, but not without some challenges. In Alberta today, the online appointment system there crashed as Albertans 75 and older became eligible for the vaccines. In Manitoba, all residents 95 and older and First Nations people 75 and over can now book appointments for their shot. And in Ontario, bookings will begin in mid-March, starting with people 80 and over. We've completed the contracting with the pharmacies. We're doing a tabletop exercise this week, this, this coming Monday, and we'll do a small pilot across Ontario. And we're also bringing to them the online reservation system and the customer service desk, which we are now furiously working to do the final stages of preparation, to test it thoroughly, and then to go live with on the 15th of March. Well, Dr. Alan Bernstein is the president and CEO of CIFAR, a Canadian-based global research organization. You can see he's with me now. Dr. Bernstein, thanks for taking time to speak with me today. My pleasure, Peter. Look, we are starting to see the ramped up vaccination plans from the provinces now based on what you've seen and, and been hearing. How, how confident are you that provinces will be able to deliver on those plans to uh, try and speed up these vaccinations? Well, I think, you know, now that the, the deliveries have, have increased, um, I think I think yeah, all eyes have moved from Ottawa to the provinces, and and I'm confident that the provinces will iron out the bugs. It's a question of how quickly they'll do it, uh, so that we get these vaccines as quickly as possible. And I think the great thing is Canadians really want these vaccines, hmm. uh, and they want them sooner than later. So uh, let's just hope that the provinces solve the problems. And every province is different. So it's hard to, it's hard to yeah. generalize I mean, in terms of what's going to happen. Yeah, that may be part of the problem we're seeing early days here is the, the desire for those vaccines. Uh, we, we, we know Ontario will launch its online portal March 15th for booking appointments. Uh, some people asking why it hasn't already been established. In Alberta, the online booking system crashed today on, a, on day one. And I guess I'm wondering whether you think those problems are to be expected or they do they give you concern about just how well prepared the provinces actually are? 
Well, I think it does reflect the high demand uh, for these vaccines. And, and I think that's, uh, you know, in, in one sense, that's a good thing. On the other hand, you know, it's important to get these into arms as soon as possible. Um, a, so we're all protected, uh, but B, so that we really limit the, the appearance or emergence of these variants of concern, that are these mutant viruses that are somewhat uh, more transmissible, like the one out of the UK or the one out of the S South Africa that seems to be more resistant to the vaccines. Uh, when you talk about variants, and uh, so, you know, it's really important as we follow this story to, to sort of talk a little bit about intersections. You have, you know, in, uh, the rate of infection, the number of cases dropping in the country, the number of variants going up, the vaccine rollout uh, trying to take place as quickly as possible. And I've, all of that makes me wonder if which camp you're in here about a third wave and whether that's that's going to be inevitable or is there anything we can do to either seriously minimize it or prevent it? Well, I think there's, there, there is. I think there's two things we can do. Um, one is, of course, is to um, get these vaccines out as soon as possible. Uh, the second is, to, I think, to keep observing uh, even more so now the sort of, I'll call them traditional, it's been a year, traditional public health measures of wearing masks, keeping our physical distancing, washing hands, and keeping a lockdown in place until we've, we've nailed it. Um, at the end of the day, I'm pretty confident that we're smarter than the virus, and we will, we will beat the virus, but we'd like to do it with a, as, as, to minimize the, the effect on our economy and on our health as much as possible. Uh, and so I think we've just got to keep those two strategies in mind. And that's, that's going to be key for the next few months. Right. Um, so there's good news and bad news. The vaccines are here. They're coming in higher numbers. That's great. But so are the variants. It's been interesting to hear the last couple of days, too, and, and more than that, I suppose, the, the magnitude of this process. And when we talk about resources and who's going to administer all these doses as they roll out to the provinces. And uh, you know, now we hear looking at pharmacies and doctor's offices, massage therapists, ac acupuncture clinics. Uh, what does that tell us about the need for speed in getting these vaccinations done? Well, I think there is a great need for speed. Um, you know, people are getting ill every day. People are dying every day. And even though the numbers are going down, they're not down to zero. And there is a risk with the variants that they'll start to go back up again. Um, and I think, look, what, there's a lot we can learn from how the UK has done the rollout. They've done it so well. We, we should really be looking closely, in my judgment, at what the UK did. They had a 24-7 operation with volunteers helping out. And I know from my own circle, just friends, actually, when we've talked about this and they've asked me about it, every one of them has said they'd be willing to help in one way or the other if they were asked to or if they had a way to do it. So I think provincial governments should draw on that resource uh, and, and make this an all-out effort. It's, it's, you know, the Brits are, doing, are used to doing it based on what they did in World War II. Right. I mean, have we heard enough about that in this country, about uh, a sort of a, a, a call-out to anybody who's available to help with even a, you know, a, uh, in some cases, you know, doctors know exactly what to do, but other people could be trained up. Uh, have we been hearing enough about that in this country? No, I don't, th I don't think we have. And I think there's also, it's not just injecting the needle. It's someone taking a record of your name, uh, your health card number, and which, which vaccine you got, because soon we're going to have a, a number of different options of vaccines. There's the two RNA vaccines, the AstraZeneca vaccine apparently is going to be approved any day now by Health Canada. Johnson & Johnson Janssen just released the results of their vaccine today, this morning. Yeah. And those results look pretty good. 66% so effective with a single dose. Yeah. 
with a single dose, and if that's preventing serious disease, it's 94%. So I think we're going to see the J&J vaccine approved pretty soon as well. So we're going to have options, but it also means someone's got to keep records of which vaccine you've got. Right. Uh, let's finish on this. Uh, what about this, uh, the, you know, the, the, the idea of combining the doses of vaccines, which could uh, speed up the vaccination process, at least for, a, for an initial dose to, to more people, uh, using one approved vaccine, then getting perhaps a, a different second approved vaccine for your second dose. Um, is that a realistic option? Uh, yeah, I think it is. Uh, but I think we need to do the experiment first. We need to actually find out whether mixing and matching uh, or what's called heterologous prime boost coming in with one vaccine of one science platform, so of an RNA vaccine first, let's say, and then the viral vector vaccine second, whether that actually gives a better immune response. And I think there's reason, sort of in theory, to think that actually will be the case, but we need to do the experiment. Now, again, there's an experiment just started in the UK to actually uh, to ask that question. Uh, I think it would be wise for Canadian investigators to hook up with the, with the UK's colleagues and do that trial here in Canada as well. Um, and the trial is actually better done here because to do the trial, you need people who are immunologically naive. That is, they've never been exposed right. to the virus. And so we're, we're a much more immunologically naive population than in the UK. We've had much fewer cases of, of the virus here and much fewer people vaccinated. Yeah, so, so it will be a good place to test it. It's a really good place to test. All right, uh, Dr. Alan Bernstein, uh, thank you so much for your time tonight. Appreciate it. My pleasure. Well, the estimated cost for Canada's new fleet of 15 Navy combat ships is climbing once again. The price tag was initially pegged at $14 billion, then $26 billion, then $70 billion. And a report today from the Parliamentary Budget Officer says the cost is now more than $77 billion, and additional delays will push the cost up over $80 billion. The Surface Combatant Project is the single largest purchase ever by the Canadian government. It's five years behind schedule, and there's still no signed contract. The fleet is to be built at the Irving shipyard in Halifax, but the government acknowledges the first vessel will not be delivered until at least 2030. So let's get more details on the findings in his report released today from Parliamentary Budget Officer Yves Giroux. Monsieur Giroux, good to see you again. Thanks for taking time to speak with me. My pleasure. So lay out for us how the costs of this procurement have climbed to $77 billion and, and could it could hit $82 billion over the next couple of years. What's going on here? Well, there has been delays in the construction. So whenever you have a delay on a program that is such uh, such that size, so size, sorry, so such a big procurement program, whenever you have a delay, it increases the cost because it spans a number of decades, in fact. So there's inflation. There's also been changes in the specification. So the size of the ships have increased. They went from 6,900 tons to 7,800 tons. And every time you you, you are looking or considering buying a bigger ship, it makes for a significant cost increase. And it's probably in good part what's causing the delays. Yeah. And we've also incorporated the most recent information as the government and the, the shipyards gain more experience in, in, in the design of the ship. So that's what is driving the vast majority of the cost increases compared to our previous report in 2019, where we had uh, estimated the cost to be slightly below $70 billion. All right, just to get this out of the way because of the climate we live in, can any of the delays be, or, or the most recent delays, 
delay? Any Anything be blamed on the pandemic or that's just not a thing? It doesn't seem to be the case. It doesn't seem to be blamed or attributable to the pandemic. Maybe there's some small parts of the delays that could be explained by that. But but not but billions of not, dollars. <laughs> yeah. No, 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 no. Okay, so uh, so you've talked about what causes the, the, what has caused the the price to go up and, and the different delays. What's I mean, was it part of your study to determine why there were delays, why the why the, you know the sort of design keeps being reexamined, the performance issues reexamined, uh, the demands on the ships reexamined? Uh, is that what this is all about? Uh, we were not asked to look at the reasons for the delays. So we did this report in uh, at the request of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Government Operations. And what they asked us to do was to update our cost estimate that we had done previously in 2019 and also to look at alternatives. So they didn't specifically ask us to look at the reasons for the delays. What we did was estimating the current, the, the, provide them with the most current cost estimate, and also look at alternatives, which are the FREM, the European multi-mission frigate, as well as the smaller Type 31 frigate. So this is what we did. So we didn't look at the reasons behind the um, the, the delays. Right. So those options you looked at and uh, the possibility of a mixed fleet as well, there are savings to be had there uh, So and they would be cheaper. But would those cheaper options uh, sacrifice performance issues and and would it be another uh, delay on top of that if, if, if the projects restarted by looking at, at alternatives and mixed fleets? So it's clear that if we were to start all over again, abandon the current design and start all over again and launch a new competitive process to look at other options, there would be uh, probably a four-year additional delay in getting the actual ships in the hands of the Royal Canadian Navy. Uh, so that's why we looked at a hybrid scenario where the government would continue with the current design, which is called Type 26, mm -hmm. and get three ships. In the meantime, while these three first three ships would be built, then there would be a, the launch of a new competitive process to get the remaining 12 ships and to decide what design they would go with and then um, it would give sufficient time for the process, the competitive process to be launched. And by the time we get delivery of the third ship, the fourth ship under the new design would be uh, in construction. And of course, depending on the type of ships that would be chosen, there could be significant savings indeed. But, but, as but you also performance to, issues, right? Exactly. Yeah. So uh, a ship is a ship. Yes, it has capacities, but not the same capabilities. So if, for example, the government was to go with the REM, which is being used by the Italian and French navies, notably, mm. it would probably have broadly similar capabilities, not identical. But if the government was to choose the Type 31 frigate, uh, which is a smaller, also multi-capacity frigate, it wouldn't have the exact same capability. So it's a smaller ship, so it doesn't have the exact same range of capabilities. So the Type 31, which is the cheapest option, 
clearly doesn't have the same capabilities. Right. Like so, okay, you know, the price tag is the is the if I can put it that way is the sort of sticker shock in all of this when people hear that number. Uh, and your office has, has come under fire from retired Navy personnel trying to discredit your costing even before it was released today. They're they're worried the rising price tag might make the government reconsider the purchase and maybe go with some of the options you've you've described. And uh, given how much money is going at the door these days to deal with the pandemic, uh, how do you view that criticism of of your office and and this notion that you know you don't really understand uh, what's involved in building a ship, so there's a price tag attached to it, but you're missing the spin-off idea, the made in Canada uh, section of that, and the argument for that, and all the things that go into making a kind of ship that Canada needs. How do you respond to that criticism? Well, it's uh, it's true that different ships have different capabilities. So, and it's also true that having these ships built abroad would probably be cheaper. Uh, so that's why when we compared our, our cost estimates for the three types of ships, the current and the two alternatives, we all assumed that all ships would be built in Canada. So what the uh, House of Commons committee asked us to look mm -hmm. at was the cost. And that's what we did, assuming that all ships, regardless of the design that could be chosen, would be built in Canada. So we looked at the cost we pro providing cost estimates to the government, uh, to uh, rather the parliamentarians, as well as Canadians. But it is true, the naval officers have a good point. Um, capabilities is an essential part of a decision to get that type of ship yeah. rather than the other type of ship. But the cost is also a very important consideration. I'm not pronouncing on which ships would be right. the best option given, for Canada. Giving, giving Canadians the numbers. Exactly. Yeah, right. And it's up to decision makers and parliamentarians to make informed decisions, taking into consideration the cost, but also what does the Navy need? All right. Uh, Yves Giroux, always good to talk to you. Thanks again for your time today. Take care. My pleasure. You too. That's all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks again for watching. See you next time.